Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to give. We pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, that, Father, you would speak to each one of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would give me the words to speak. Lord, these few fish, these few loaves that I offer this morning, would you multiply, Father, and would you feed us with it for the sake of transformation, not for the sake of information. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. heard a story of a young writer who had a very uncertain future. He was engaged for about four years to a certain girl that he loved very much, but the problem was he wasn't making very much money. And because he didn't have a very steady income, he was really afraid to get married. He, he said, you know, how can I support this girl? How can, how can I, I get a house? How can I, I move forward with my life, with, with this very uncertain income that I have? And one day he just decided he'd go to the park and he'd just kind of think about his problems. And so as he sat down on a park bench, he was just thinking about it. And he noticed that there was a squirrel. And the squirrel was up in a tree. And the squirrel did something that I'm sure you've seen lots of times before. The squirrel went running out on a branch. And when it got to the very end of the branch, it just kind of jumped out into space and flew through the air into the branch of another tree. I mean, the man kind of gasped when he saw the squirrel jump because the, the branch it seemed to be aiming for, it missed. But it landed unconcerned on a branch a few feet down and scampered off into the new tree. And there was an old man sitting on the park bench beside him, and the old man just laughed and shook his head and said, You know, I've seen squirrels do that so many times, and although I've seen them miss the branch many times, I've never seen them miss the tree. And he just kind of smiled and he said, you know, I guess a squirrel has to risk it if it doesn't want to spend its whole life in one tree. And that young writer began thinking about that. The squirrel has to risk it if it doesn't want to spend its whole life in one tree. And he said to himself, don't I even have the faith of a squirrel? Within a month, he and that girl got married. They scraped up the savings that they had. They moved to Europe where he became a very famous writer. And within just a few months, they were living very, very comfortably. And he went on to write all kinds of different things, but he said, whenever in life from that point forward, they came to a crossroads. They came to a decision. They came to a place where he could play it safe or he could take the way of courage that he would always think back to that park bench and think back to that old man and hear those words. You know, squirrel has to risk it if it doesn't want to spend its whole life in one tree. How about you? Are you a courageous Christian? When you have to choose between risking a new venture or hanging back and playing it safe, how do you respond? How do you be a courageous Christian? I want us to turn our Bibles this morning to a passage of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever read this before, but I want to tell this today the story of the two swords from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. 1 Samuel chapter 14, 1 to 7. You can follow along in your Bibles because I'll be referring back to it. 
1 Samuel 14 verse 1 says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, the other was called Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other stood to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. You know, the background of this story is very important. To understand the text, you have to understand what comes around the text. In this story... The Philistines were at war with the Israelites. The Philistines were constantly taking their armies and going into Israel. They would kill the people. They would burn the villages. They would burn the crops. And there was one thing that they were doing that was very, very effective. Every time the Philistines would go into the Israelite areas, they would capture and kill all the blacksmiths. Now, You say, why? Why is that? Well, what is a blacksmith? A blacksmith is a person who works with metal. You know what a blacksmith is, right? They they heat up the metal and then they bang the metal. They make things for horses, horseshoes. But it was the blacksmith's job to make weapons. And the Philistines knew that if there were no blacksmiths, then there were no weapons. We read about this earlier in 1 Samuel 13, 19, when it says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. And so all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, and their sickles sharpened. This meant that there were only two swords left in Israel. In all of Israel, the entire country, there were only two weapons, two swords that were left. Now, that was an effective strategy of the Philistines. And can I tell you, it's also a very effective strategy of the devil today. You see, the devil thinks if he can get to the blacksmiths, if he can get to the people who sharpen and who teach the truth of God's word, because, you know, the Bible is compared as, as the sword of the Lord, right? The devil believes if he can attack the blacksmiths, if he can get rid of the people who teach and proclaim the truth, then he can keep the people defeated. This is just an aside, but this is an encouragement, I believe, for every one of us to make sure that we're praying regularly for everyone who's a teacher and a proclaimer of truth. That parents, are you praying on a regular basis for the Sunday school teachers that are teaching your children? Are we praying for places like UMEI? Are we praying for 
SBC? Are we praying for places where people are being trained up and who are learning the Word of God? Are we praying for the pastors? I think the, 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 the goal of the Reformation was to bring the Bible back into the hands of the people. To not make people as dependent upon the blacksmiths. That in reality, all of us are called to be blacksmiths. All of us are called to be people who are learning and who are growing and who are constantly daily in the Word of God, growing in our own faith, keeping that sword that we have sharp. Anyways, that's just an aside. Let's get back to this story. Two swords were left in Israel. One sword was held by Jonathan and one sword was held by Saul. We read about this First Samuel 13, 22. On the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. And it's not that I want you just to understand that there were only two swords left. I want you to understand how each one of those swords was being used. Saul had one of the swords. And what was Saul doing? It says here in the story that Saul was sitting under a tree, a pomegranate tree, resting. You get this picture of Saul just kind of sitting there eating pomegranates out of the tree with one of the only swords of Israel by his side doing nothing. Was Saul by himself? No. It says that Saul had 600 soldiers with him. These were the elite soldiers of Israel. The Philistines were going out. They were killing people. They were burning villages. They were burning crops. And where were the soldiers? Where was the king? Where were the protectors of Israel? They were sitting under a tree doing nothing. And not only was Saul there, and not only were the soldiers were there, the high priest was also there. The spiritual leader of Israel was there, sitting under a tree, not doing what he was supposed to be doing. They were sitting there defeated. They were sitting there doing nothing. That's with one sword. But it says that Jonathan had a sword as well. And instead of just sitting there and doing nothing with his sword, Jonathan said, you know what? I'm tired of sitting around doing nothing. I'm going to attack the enemy. Jonathan took the sword he had and he used it. Can I suggest to you this morning that there are three things that you have to understand if you are going to be a courageous Christian? Three important truths that come out of this passage of Scripture. Number one, people of courage go first. People of courage go first. They are trendsetters. They lead the charge. They don't sit back. They don't stand around saying, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Maybe if you go forward, maybe I'll follow you. No. People of courage go first. People of courage see opportunities and they go after those opportunities. This story reminds me of an old cartoon I once saw. There's these two vultures sitting in a tree overlooking the desert. And there's nothing there. There's nothing in the desert. And these vultures are sitting there, and they're sitting there, and they're sitting there. And finally, the one vulture turns to the other vulture and says, You know what? 
I'm sick and tired of sitting here waiting for something to die. Let's just go kill something. Have you ever felt like that in your own life? You're just sitting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. Oh, if only this opportunity comes about. Oh, if only this will happen. Oh, if only the situation is perfect. If only everything goes my way. If only, if only, if only. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And opportunities go by and by and by. And you're missing them. Because you're just sitting there. I've heard it said that every baseball team can use a person who plays every position perfectly. Who never strikes out, who never makes an error. The problem is there's no way to make them lay down their hot dog and drink and come down out of the stands. It's very easy to sit in the sidelines and criticize. It's very easy to sit in the stands with your hot dog and your drink and to look down and to say, Oh, you're lousy. Oh, you're terrible. Oh, I would have caught that ball. Oh, I wouldn't have made that mistake. Oh, I would have hit that ball out of the park. It's easy to sit in the stands and criticize. It's hard to put the hot dog and the drink down and to get up from your seat and to get out on the field and play the game. Henry David Thoreau said, Most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. That God gives us a dream. That God gives us a vision. God gives us a mission on this earth. Every one of us. The Bible says, Before you were born, your days were numbered. That God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And until you understand that purpose... And understand that plan. You will be miserable in life. Hollywood knows this. Look at that movie, Unbreakable. Remember that movie, Unbreakable, with Bruce Willis? This man has a tremendous gift. But when he suppresses that gift, when he doesn't use his God-given abilities, he's miserable. His marriage is broken. His relationship with his child is broken. Everything about his life is broken until he stands up and says, this is who I was created and this is what I was created to do. Remember that movie, The Incredibles? Where all the people in the family had a, a special power? When they sat on their powers and when they hid their powers, they were miserable. But as soon as they stand up and use what they've been given, then their life finds new meaning and their life finds new fulfillment. Albert Schweitzer once said, The tragedy of life is what dies inside of a man while he still lives. God has a purpose for each one of our lives. Anyone here old enough to remember Atari? those old Atari game things. You know, the guy who invented Atari, a guy by the name of Nolan Bushnell, once said this, everyone who's ever taken a shower has had an idea. However, it's the person who gets out of the shower, drives off, and goes out and does something about it that makes a difference. In this story, Jonathan had a sword. And Jonathan took the sword he had and he said, you know what? I'm tired of waiting around. I'm going to go and I'm going to use what God has given me to use. 
And that's what people of courage do. They use what God has given them. Back in 1820, there was a baby that was born, a young girl, a girl. And when she was only six weeks of age, she developed an eye infection, just a little eye infection. It wasn't serious. But the family called a doctor, and a doctor showed up, but he wasn't really a trained doctor. And this doctor really just didn't know anything about medicine at all. And when he saw this little baby with the eye infection, he prescribed a hot mustard rub to put in her eyes. And when they put that compound in the baby's eyes, it permanently blinded her, scarred her cornea, and permanently blinded her. That little girl grew up, and she could have become bitter, but she didn't. She chose to be better. She could have chose to have blamed that doctor, cursed that doctor who blinded her as a child, and yet she grew up and she said, I am not going to live within the confines of darkness. I am not going to live and become a miserable and a bitter person. When she was eight years old, she wrote a little poem, and it said this, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. That little girl's name was Fanny Crosby. That little girl grew up and she wrote more than 8,000 hymns, most of which we still sing today in the church. Have you ever sang the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine? Thank Fanny Crosby. You ever sang the song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me? That's Fanny Crosby. Ever sang the song, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done? That's Fanny Crosby. Later in her life, she wrote this, It seemed intended by God's providence that I should be blind all my life. And I thank God for that dispensation. If perfect sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by all the beautiful and the interesting things around me. You know, that's a young child who grew and who understood that she had to use what she had been given. To not look back, to not make excuses, to not sit around and feel sorry for herself, but to take what she had and use it for the glory of God. That's what people of courage do. They go first, number one. But number two, people of courage go first, but people of courage, number two, have faith. They have faith. Jonathan did not know what was going to happen. Jonathan had a sword, but guess what? All the Philistines had swords too. He saw that outpost. He had to climb down one cliff. He had to climb up another cliff to get there. He didn't know if he would live or die. But you know what? He knew that God was with him. And he knew that God was against the Philistines. And so he moved forward. Faith is not knowing the future. Faith is not moving because you have no fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is stepping out in faith even when you're afraid. 
Napoleon had a general called Marshal Ney. Napoleon once said that Marshal Ney was the bravest man he had ever known. And yet Marshal Ney had a problem that before every battle, he would grow so nervous that his legs would begin to wobble. In fact, his legs would wobble so much, he could not get on his own horse. He had to have someone help him up onto his own horse. But at one day, before a battle, as someone helped him onto his horse, Marshal Ney looked down at his wobbly knees, and he said, Shake away, knees. Shake away. You would shake even worse than that if you knew where I was taking you today. It wasn't the absence of fear. It was in the face of fear. Courage to step forward, to move forward. Max Licata once said, Fear doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. If it can rattle you enough, fear will persuade you to take your eyes off the peaks and settle for a dull existence in the flatlands. That's what fear does. It robs us of our joy because it holds us back from moving forward and doing what God wants us to. Fear often comes out of failure. Why was Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree? Do you wonder that? Well, you have to read what comes just before that. You see, Saul had been told to go to Gilgal and to wait at Gilgal until the prophet came and offered a sacrifice and then they would go and they would attack the Philistines. But remember the story? Saul goes up to Gilgal and he waits and he waits and he waits and the prophet doesn't come and so the people start rebelling and the people start murmuring and so Saul is afraid and so he makes a sacrifice himself. And when the prophet comes, he says, what did you do? I told you, go and wait. And it was because of Saul's unfaithfulness that eventually Saul lost his position as king of Israel. You see, Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree because he had failed. Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree because he had tasted defeat and that taste of defeat was still in his mouth and it was that taste of defeat that was keeping him from stepping forward in faith. Maybe you've been defeated before. Maybe you've failed at something before. Maybe you're sitting here saying, Pastor Steve, I tried and I failed. I tried to step out courageously. I tried to do this. I tried to do that. But when I tried it, it didn't work out. Can I say something to you? Then try again and try again and try again. Maybe you've heard the story before of the old donkey that fell into the farmer's well. And the farmer came out, he saw his donkey down in the well, and the farmer thought, oh, it's going to cost a lot of money to get the donkey out of that well, and I was going to just, you know, fill in that well anyways, it doesn't work anymore. And so he called all his neighbors together. And one by one, they took their shovels, and they took a scoop of dirt, and they threw it into the well, thinking that they were just going to bury that donkey at the bottom of the well. And at first, every shovel full of dirt that went into that well, they would hear the donkey yell from below. But after a while, the donkey was silent. And they thought, oh, that donkey's dead. We've covered him over. But then the farmer looked down into the well, and he saw something he didn't expect to see. 
Every time a shovel full of dirt would come down and hit that donkey on the back, the donkey would simply shrug it off and take a step up. And another shovel full of dirt would fall and hit him on the back, and he'd shrug it off and he'd take a step up. Shrug it off and take a step up. And pretty soon that donkey walked out of the well. And you see, we learn from that donkey that when failures come, when we try something and we don't succeed, all you got to do is shrug it off and take a step up. Shrug it off and say, well, it didn't work that time. Maybe it'll work this time. Don't let failure, don't let fear hold you back from doing and being what God wants for you. People of courage go first. People of courage have faith. And lastly, people of courage inspire others. Now listen to this. You have to see this. Look at this passage. Was Jonathan by himself? No, he wasn't. Who was with Jonathan? It said his armor bearer. You know, an armor bearer had a terrible job back in those days. A soldier would go into battle and, you know, the soldier had a sword. The soldier had a spear. But the armor bearer had nothing. The armor bearer had nothing. He had no protection. He had no armor. He had nothing. He would just go in kind of carrying your stuff. And as the people were fighting, the armor bearer would kind of just sit there. Maybe turn off those mics, I think. They're they're hot over there or something. I'll walk this way. Armor bearers didn't like their job. A lot of armor bearers had to be kind of pushed forward. This armor bearer is described one way and only one way. It says that the armor bearer was young. The armor bearer was young. And I believe that's significant. Can I say to you, church, that young people are looking for people of courage. Young people want to be inspired. Young people want to have a cause. They want to have a mission. They are looking at our lives and looking at us and saying, okay, you say this, does your life line up with what you say? Are you doing what you're saying? Heard a story once of three military recruiters who went to a local high school. And the recruiters were from the Navy, they were from the Air Force, and they were from the Marines. They were given 15 minutes each, 45 minutes in total, to make a presentation. The first guy from the Air Force stood up and took half an hour. The next guy from the Navy stood up and took almost all the rest of the time. So by the time the guy from the Marines stood up, He only had a couple of minutes left. There was nothing he could say. He was out of time. And so he got up and he stood in front of all these high school students and he looked at them and he kind of shook his head. And he said, you know, as I look out on this room, I don't think any of you have what it takes to be a Marine. I don't think any of you have the right stuff. But if you're here today and you think you're the one that could make it, 
I want to talk to you afterwards in the cafeteria. And by the time he got to the cafeteria, there was a lineup of kids waiting to talk to him. Why did he succeed and the other two fail? Because he spoke to the courage in the heart of young people. Young people want to see courage. Young people don't want to come to church because they have to come to church. Young people don't want to come to church because it's their duty to come to church. They want to come to church because they see something in your life that shows them that coming to church makes a difference. That coming to church changes a person. That we live what we speak. Over a hundred years ago, there was an advertisement that was put in a London newspaper. It was by a man by the name of Sir Ernest Shackleton. He was leading an expedition to the South Pole. The first man to ever go to the South Pole. And he put an advertisement in the paper looking for volunteers to join him. You know what the advertisement said? Listen to this advertisement. Men wanted for very hazardous journey, small or no pay, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Would, would you have answered that advertisement? When Sir Ernest Shackleton was asked, did anyone respond to your advertisement? He said, it seemed as if every man in England were willing to come. James Garfield once said this, if there's one thing upon earth that mankind loves and admires better than any other, it is a brave man. A man who dares look the devil in the face and tell him he is the devil. It's courage. Courage to live what we believe. Courage to do and use what we've been given. I learned this as a young person myself. There was a time in my life where I read a book about a very courageous person who had gone to the mission field, given their life in mission. And I was inspired by the courage of the person I read about in that book. I decided that, you know what? I wanted to do something like that. And so I decided that I would spend one summer and I would go do some short-term mission. My family had just moved to Toronto, but the church I had grown up at, I thought, well, maybe they'd be, be behind me in this venture. And so I wrote a letter to the, the church and I said, would you be willing to support me if I went and did an overseas missionary summer term? And the church wrote back and said, no, we don't have the money to support you. We don't think this is a good idea. No. And I thought, well, that's it. That's it. There's nothing I can do about it. We were going to a new church. One week I went to church and the pastor saw me after the service. He said, Steve, what's the matter? You, you, you don't look well. And I said, well, pastor, you know, I'm really wrestling with something. I really feel that God is calling me to do something this summer, to be involved in some kind of a missions project. But, 
but I don't have any money and I got to save up for university. I was in my second year of university at the time. And, and, and I said, I, it's just not going to happen. And the pastor said, well, you know what? Something just came across my desk today. Let me make a phone call. And while I sat there, he picked up the phone and he called someone. He said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he, answered the, and, and he hung up the phone and he turned to me and said, you leave, you leave in two weeks, you're going to Bolivia. And I said, Bolivia? Where in the world is Bolivia? I have no idea. I went home, got out an atlas, you know, I found out, you know, this country, Bolivia. I had no idea where it was. I had no idea what I was going to be doing. I had no idea of what was before me. I tell you, getting onto that plane was scary. I remember packing up my bags and I'd never been out of the country and I'm, I'm wondering what's going on and I, just getting on this plane and, and, I, I, and I flew to Bolivia. I landed in Santa Cruz, was picked up by a doctor at the airport who spoke to me in Spanish. I had no idea what he was saying. Drove me into Santa Cruz to a clinic. They thought I was a doctor. They thought they were getting a new doctor for their clinic. And I'm, and I'm sitting there saying, no, 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 I'm not a doctor. I, I, I don't know anything about doctor. I'm just, I'm just in university. I, I don't know anything like this. And, and they, they were speaking Spanish, and I didn't understand it. And so they, they put me in a room. And they said, you sit here, you know. And, 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 I, and I was in this room, and they were outside the room, and they were arguing with each other. And as they spoke, their voices were getting louder and louder and louder. And I was saying, God, why am I here? God, why did you bring me here? I thought that, that I was supposed to do this, but, but <coughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know why I'm here. As I sat there in that room, I looked over, and there was an old microscope sitting on the desk. And I walked over and I looked into that microscope, turned on the light. And I had just happened to have taken a course in parasitology in university. I, you know, it wasn't a course I wanted to do. It was a course that I kind of had taken by accident. And, and I thought, why in the world am I taking this course? But as I looked down in the microscope, I saw that there was an egg of a parasite, the hookworm, called Ancyclinostoma duodali. So the Latin word. And the doctors came walking back in. I'm sure the doctors were walking back in to say, okay, put me on the airplane, send me home. And when they came walking back in, I looked up from the microscope and I said, Ancyclinostoma duodali. And they said, see, Ancyclinostoma duodali. They handed me another slide. I looked at it. Trichurus trichuria, pinworm. And they looked and they said, see, Trichurus trichuria. You see, we both spoke the Latin term. I didn't understand until the end of the summer that that clinic had been praying for three years for God to send them a parasitologist. For God to send them someone who understood how to identify parasite eggs under a microscope. They didn't need a doctor. They didn't need one. They had them. What they really needed was someone to teach them parasitology. And that's what God did. You see, God knew. God understood. God had a plan in that whole situation. God had a plan. But it took getting on the plane, getting out of my comfort zone, traveling halfway around the world to get to a place where I understood that plan. 
And it was because of that summer I went into ministry. And it was because of that summer I'm standing here in front of you right now. When Jesus walked out on the water to the disciples in the boat, all the disciples saw him. But it was only Peter who said, you know what, if Jesus is out on the water, then maybe I can be out on the water too. And he said, Lord, if you want me to come to you, call me. And he called him, and Peter got out of the boat. Now he ended up sinking, okay. But he was the only one, he was the only disciple who understood what it was like to walk on the water. If only for a moment he understood. And can I say to you this morning, you will never understand what it is to walk on water until you get out of the boat. You will never know the thrill of hovering above the waves until you leave the safety of what you've known. The motto of the French Foreign Legion, if I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. Let me close. In the coming year, What is God calling you to? I believe that there are people here in this room right now that have a Philistine outpost that God has placed before them. A stronghold in your life. For some of you this is an addiction. For some of you this is a habit. For some of you this is something you've been dealing with for a long, long time. Just like the Israelites for a long, long time had been dealing with the Philistines. Maybe it's time to take the sword that you have. Take the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit that God has placed within you and step out in faith and do something about it. Change that situation in your life. For some of you, you're sitting under a pomegranate tree. You're playing it safe. You're taking it easy. Maybe because of failure in the past. Maybe because of something that's happened. I don't know what it is. But for some of you, you know that God has called you into something and you know what it is, but you're holding back. You're not moving forward. 2010 is the time to take the sword and to move forward. To get up from under the tree. To do something. To get out of the boat. To walk on the waves. Let's pray together.